Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. The Revelation of the Mystery. That is a strange title. I mean, all you have to do is throw in mystery into the title and it makes it all the more mysterious. But the Revelation of the Mystery. And I'm actually so excited about this message. I don't know how I'm going to possibly get it out because it's a lot bigger uh, than I know even how to articulate. But I would like to move forward and take the next step. In the Greek, we have a word which you will recognize looks very similar to the word mystery. Of course, it's where the word mystery comes from. And it's musterion, which means to shut the mouth, maintain a secret, a mystery, something hidden, a secret counsel. It is not something that is readily known. It is something that is kept. It is something that is hidden, something that is obscured. But it seems that it's purposely obscured. It is there, and technically, if you had the right key to stick in the lock, you could actually figure it out. But the key is missing. And so as a result, you have what would be termed a proverb. You have something that makes sense to the natural mind at a certain level, but it maintains a mystery. And so you can only understand it to a certain degree. The entire Old Testament would be a mystery. And yet, you all could read it and understand it at a certain level. There's stories in it. There's characters in it. Uh, there's, there's a tale. There's a drama. There's a series of events. However, you could miss the entire purpose of the Old Testament, which pointed towards one. There was one that would become that entire Old Testament made flesh, and he would walk on two feet. And as a result, the very ones entrusted with the Old Testament mystery... The Old Testament parable, when that one came, rejected him, crucified him. They missed it. You see, without the key, without the interpretation of the mystery, you actually miss the entire meaning. And so, let's begin to look in the New Testament at the word mystery. It's used many, many times. In fact, this is just a smattering. Now, to him that is of power, to establish you according to my gospel... And the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. There's been a mystery, but it's been kept secret. Paul uses the term musterion over and over and over again. And he says, I have come to give you this mystery. This mystery that was hid for ages and generations has now been revealed. And so he's talking about this mystery, but he says it has been hidden. It has been kept since... The world began. Isn't that exciting? But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. So it was ordained. It was determined before it all began. Before the world even began, there was something hidden. There was something kept back. And now it has been revealed. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself. So one of the things you're going to begin to see as we go through this message is that there is a mystery, and it has been hidden. It has been hidden even before the foundations of the earth. However, this mystery 
was purposed to be revealed in a person, in a man. And that man's name is Jesus, who is not just a mere man, he's also God. The very one who reveals the mystery, by the way, is the mystery, and is the one that came up with the mystery. There was something hidden. And that something has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote a foreign few words, whereby when ye read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. This mystery has been hidden. Where? It's in God, which is Jesus. Jesus is the very one who created. Remember, it's always saying before the creation, before the creation. Who's the one that created? Jesus created. And he created a world in which that mystery would be revealed. However, we can see all of God's creation in which the mystery is hidden and miss Jesus, the creator of that mystery. How many times have, has the world proven that? That they worship the creation instead of the creator. They miss the mystery. They miss that which is woven into the fabric of God's creation. It was created by Jesus Christ to reveal Jesus Christ, and yet somehow they're not seeing Jesus Christ. But may that not be said of us. You see, there's now a new creation. And that new creation is to, be, is to reveal what? The mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations. That new creation is meant to reveal the same person, Jesus Christ. Jesus. The most basic tool for rightly handling the word. Everything in scripture pertains to Christ. He is the key to unlock the mystery. One of the ways that I've described it, and this, is, this goes into the realm of what could be called hermeneutics, or how you properly approach the Bible to bring about a correct interpretation. And my basic hermeneutic that we would teach here at Ellerslie would be Jesus. Jesus is the hermeneutic. You take Jesus and him crucified. He is the answer. He is what the entire Bible points to. So when you take the end point of what Paul says, it's about him. Jesus himself says, it's about me. And so then we take that which God says it's about, and then we begin to stick it in like a key into every scripture in the Bible. And what do we begin to see? We see the revelation of the mystery. You want to understand the word of God in text. You need to understand the word of God in person. But to understand the word of God in person, you need the the word of God in text. It's a strange thing. You need the word of God in in text because it reveals the word of God in person. But then when you believe the text of scripture and you believe the word of God in person, you take that person, known as Jesus Christ, known as the very creator of the heavens and the earth, and you inject him into the text of scripture and suddenly it all makes sense. This is Jesus talking. Search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. What do the scriptures testify of? They testify of Jesus Christ. You see, you can oftentimes go to the scriptures thinking that in the text you have eternal life. But it's actually not in the text that you have eternal life. It's in the text made flesh that you have eternal life. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. All of the scriptures are there to lead us to one. To Jesus, that we would see him and that we would believe in him. Not just believe the scriptures, but believe who the scriptures point to. The scriptures are a treasure map. They're not the treasure, but they're the only thing that leads us to the treasure, which is why we will gladly shed our blood to see every jot and tittle preserved in it. 
If you start clipping off the portions of a treasure map that you just don't like, you suddenly will not find the treasure. But there's an X that it marks in that entire treasure map. It says, this is the mystery hidden. It's been buried before the foundations of the earth, but this is how you will find it. And when you follow that map, it leads you to a treasure. But that treasure is not text. That treasure is a person. That treasure is the person of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He's speaking with the disciples after his resurrection. And he says, then, or this is what it says of it, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. These are Jews that know the scriptures, but they don't understand the scriptures. What was needed and what was the key that unlocked the scriptures? It's Jesus. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, this is speaking of Jesus, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. For had you believed Moses, says Jesus, you would have believed me. Get this line. This is quite the statement. For he wrote of me. Whoa. Genesis? What does that have to do with Jesus? Exodus? Leviticus? Numbers? Deuteronomy? He wrote of Jesus? Yes, he wrote of Jesus. You see, all scriptures pertain to Jesus. All of this. You say, no, that's just stories. That's just laws. That's just sacrificial rites. We, we don't, that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with Jesus. The interpreter. The key to unlock the mystery. We can call Jesus the interpreter. Now, that's a strange name for him. But he's the one that interprets the mystery. You see, there's a mystery, and you probably have a mystery in your life right now, too. And there are things that could cause question marks. Why? How? Why is this? How does this fit? What do you think the Jewish nation was dealing with? We know we have a Messiah. We know we have no hope outside that Messiah. But how does this work? How can he be of the lineage of David and have the kingship of David? How can he be a king and a priest and rule upon the same throne? Because that must, means he has to be from Levi. And he must be from the tribe of Judah. And how can he also be born of a virgin? That's what it says. How in the world can all these things be true? It's a mystery. But that mystery was fulfilled in Jesus. And so you may not be able to understand it, but with the key, with the interpreter, you stick it into all those prophecies and it works. <laughs> How did that work? Well, it's God. You see, this is divine. It's a divine mystery. It's not something that any man can solve. God solves it and he solves it in himself. Not in the mind of men, not in the philosophies of men, but in himself. So the interpreter. If you go into the New Testament, well, let's go in the Old Testament first. In the Old Testament, you have dreams, and then you have men like Joseph and men like Daniel that interpret dreams. You see, it's hidden. I don't know how many of you could read someone else's mind and know what they dreamed last night, and then give an interpretation of the dream, and then have that interpretation prove true. You know what? Not the easiest thing to pull off. And so that's called an interpreter of a mystery. And then in the New Testament, you have something that is known as tongues and an interpreter. There must be an interpreter. Without an interpreter, all you have is gobbledygook. It doesn't make sense. And so what we have is a symbol right at the very beginning of the church to literally link back to the entire Old Testament. You could say the entire Old Testament is tongues. It doesn't make sense, even to the rabbis. They didn't fully understand it. It was a mystery. But there must be an interpreter in the church. 
And there is. It's called Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ brings order. He brings clarity. He brings understanding to something that otherwise was gibberish. He's the interpreter. So we're going to do a study in mystery. We're going to take a specific story in the Old Testament, and we're going to demonstrate how it shows Jesus Christ. But to show that, we have to take the key of Jesus and the cross and stick it into that story. So this is a study in mystery. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Two offerings. This is Cain and Abel. Let's read the story real quick. Genesis 4. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. So one thing you're going to notice is Cain is the firstborn. That is important, even though it's obvious here. And bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. So Cain has brought an offering. And he's just a tiller of the ground. And he works hard in the ground. And he's brought forth a crop, a harvest. And he takes of his harvest and he lays it on the altar. And then here's Abel. Abel is a keeper of sheep. And so he brings of the firstling of his flock, he brings and he sacrifices it. And most of us are just looking on going, uh -huh, uh -huh, well, what does this matter? Everything in the Bible is pertaining to Jesus. Everything. You can say, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus Christ? What well, has a lot to do with it? And so it says, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. There's one offering that God will receive. There's another offering that he won't. And he'll reject it. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall he be, be his desire. And thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Right in the very beginning of the Bible, we have this concept of two offerings, two sorts of men. They're at enmity with each other. The firstborn kills the second. And so what we have from the very onset of Scripture is we have a picture of something, two different offerings, one that God receives, one that God rejects. And I know some of you are like, what does this have to do with Jesus? It has everything to do with Jesus. In the New Testament, we have a concept that is very clear. And that is that there are two entities, two manner of people. There is flesh and there is spirit. And the firstborn, the flesh, is always at enmity with the second. But the second is the one that offers the offering that God can receive. So let's dig into this a little more. So we have sweat and blood. Both of these men are offering something. The first one, Cain is offering sweat and blood, but it's the fruit of man's labor, and it's not accepted. He tills the ground with the sweat of his brow, and he offers up his offering, that which he brought forth through his own sweat and blood, and God says, I can't receive that. Sweat and blood. What does Abel offer? The life of the firstling of the flock. The first of the flock. The firstborn among many brethren. It's the lamb that was slain. That is the one that is acceptable to God. 
And we're always like, why is God so random in what he does? He is not random. What he is doing is very purposeful. What he's accepting is the offering of the second. Adam is the firstborn. We are all dead in our sin and in Adam. And then there is a second. It's called the last Adam. It's the second man. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born anew. But it's his offering. It's the offering of the second. His very sweat and blood. It's the sweat and blood of God. The sweat and blood of the perfect lamb. That is what God receives. The sweat and blood of God's labor. Galatians 2. Now, what I did in this scripture is where it talks about law and the works of man. I have changed that out just so you can have an expanded edition. Everything in parentheses is my edition. Okay, I'm not trying to change scripture. I'm trying to take this concept from Genesis 4 and apply it so that you can see it more clearly. Knowing that a man is not justified or made right before God by the works of the law, and I'm going to say in here, by the sweat and blood of man's labor. You can labor all you want for your own righteousness. Say, but look what I'm offering God. Look what I have to give. But you are not justified that way. But by the faith of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to say next to that, the sweat and blood of God's labor. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, the sweat and blood of God's labor, and not by the works of the law, by the sweat and blood of man's labor. For by the works of the law, the sweat and blood of man's labor, shall no flesh be justified. That's just good old-fashioned Christianity. The firstborn, the flesh, cannot please God. That's what it says very clearly in Scripture. Unless you be born again, you cannot actually please God. But when you are born again, that's because you're being clothed in a new life. No longer are you in Adam or in the first. You are now in the second. And when you are in the second, his offering becomes your offering. And you are clothed in his blood. What saves you? Where does your confidence lie? Is it in your own sweat and blood, the offering of your own making, your own life, and your own recipe? What are you putting on the altar? If you're putting on the altar your best that you have to give, it will not be accepted. And you are still at enmity with Abel. You are still at enmity with the second. Or is it his sweat and blood? Where does your confidence lie? Our answer, even though this might sound like a strange way of saying it, is my, my confidence lies in Jesus, his sweat and blood, the work that he did on the cross. That's where my confidence lies. It's his offering, his life given, his body broken, and the pouring out of his blood. The first and the second. So all throughout scripture you'll see this. Cain, born first. Abel, born second. Which one did God receive? Abel. Ishmael, Isaac. Ishmael, born first. The product of flesh. Taking things into her own hands. Who's born second? Isaac. Who does God choose out of the two? He chooses the second. And it's out of Isaac that his seed will be called. Isaac is the lineage of the seed. Isaac is the one through which the Messiah will come. God chose Isaac the second. Esau, Jacob. Esau is born first. Harry all over. Hunter. Isaac, born second. Plain man. Dwells in tents. Sounds sort of wimpy. The second always looks weaker. And yet God says, I choose the one that looks weak. I know he may look weak to you, but he represents something. Jacob was chosen. His name is also Israel. That's the new name that God gave him. So... God chooses Israel, not Esau. Amalek, Israel. Amalek is the descendants of Esau. Well, guess who comes forth out of Jacob? Israel. Amalek is called the first nation. What do you think Israel is? It's the nation. 
It's not just talking about lands and earths and, and Jewish blood line. It's Jesus and his descendants. It is the kingdom of God. Leah, the first wife, the one that Jacob couldn't quite accept. The second, the one he loved. Manasseh and Ephraim, the two sons of Joseph. Jacob is coming in to give a blessing in his dying hours on Joseph's two sons. And Jacob purposely, here's the firstborn and here's the second one. He takes his hand that's his right hand of blessing, and he sticks it on the second born, on Ephraim. And Joseph says, no, no, father, that's my second born. You have, have it mixed up. He says, no, I don't. And he blessed the second. Saul and David, who's the first king of Israel? Saul, rejected. Who's the better man? David. Old covenant, new covenant. Which one can, can you not please God with? By maintaining the old covenant, you cannot please God. It is an offering of your ability. But what it does is a schoolmaster which leads you to Jesus. The one offering that can please God. The old covenant only shows that you do not have it yourself. You are ruled by sin. It gives sin its power and it shows the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And you cry out, what must I do to be saved? I'm glad you asked. His name is Jesus. Old covenant, new covenant. Adam, Jesus. First cannot please God. It is an offering that is not acceptable. It's the second that offers what God will accept. So then they that are in the flesh, the firstborn, cannot please God. Now listen to this scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have been born... As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. You see, this is called being born anew. You were earthy. You were sensual. You were of this world system. But when you turn to Jesus, you are born anew. And now you begin to bear the image of the second, of the heavenly. It's called the spirit. Flesh versus spirit. The Edomites. You guys know who the Edomites are? Edomites, they're the descendants of Esau. Actually, they are Esau's kin. Esau, well, I'll I'll just say it this way. I'll give you the scriptures that follow this. I'll let it explain it to you. The Edomites, they're also just known as the firstborn. Esau, who is Edom. You getting the idea? That, That is, Esau is Edom. I don't know why this guy has so many names, but that's who it is. Esau, who is Edom. He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Okay, now why they're not called the Esauites is part of where the confusion comes. As a result, we do not see the connection and the correlation throughout Israel's history. This is the descendants of the firstborn. All throughout history, you start studying the Edomites and the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the descent of Esau, and the Edomites are the descent of Esau. This is his fruit, the fruit of the firstborn, which God says, I hate Esau, but I love Jacob. What? How rude is that? What did the guy do? You don't even need to take it personally for Esau. It's a symbol of the first. The first does not have that which can please God. Edom and the Edomites. Doesn't that sound like some band? Uh, (laughs) What the word Edom means is very fascinating. It means red and earthy. Isn't that interesting? The first man is of the earth, earthy. The first man is of the earth, Edom. That's what it means. The first man is Edom. 
Well, that's true. And God says, and I hate Edom. What? Uh, you must be born again. You must become a second born. Well, how do I do that? I don't know how to be born again. How's a man supposed to crawl back into his mother's womb and be born again? Sounds like Nicodemus, doesn't it? You must believe. And when you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, there is what's known as a new birth, a transformation. You become new. All things are made new. You're called a new creature. It's a new creation in Christ Jesus. Hard to explain, but that's how it works. So red and earthy, that which boasts of the earth's strength. See, Esau was a hunter. He lived off the land by his own power and the strength of his hair on his chest. The man was hairy all over. It's actually sort of an awkward description when you look at it. I mean, you just sort of picture, you know, it coming out of his collar, and you're like, whoa, tame that stuff. The guy was hairy all over. And every single one of us, if we matched up Esau and Jacob, and we said, so who do you want to go to war with you? Well, I don't want that skinny, frail guy who's over here knitting. I'll take this hairy hunter. That's who I want. And the hairy hunter will go, yeah, picked well. Who do you choose in your own life? You have a flesh. Who do you choose to go to battle for God with? And you say, I'll take Esau. He can help me. And meanwhile, the guy over here that's knitting, you're being tested. I know he looks weak, but in that is the lineage of strength. Right there, Jacob. And you're like, Jacob? Uh-huh. It's a mystery. It's hidden in the second. This true strength is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. By the second the carpenter out of Nazareth, seemingly born illegitimate. Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. If he really was the king of all kings, he wouldn't look like that. There was nothing in his form that would attract us. He did not come as the leading man that would cause all the nations to behold and say, wow, that's it. Why did God do it this way? It's called a mystery. But in that mystery is hidden all truth. God doesn't intend to keep mystery mystery. He intends to reveal mystery in and through Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord Almighty says. They, the Edomites, may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. The firstborn is always under the wrath of God. Just a simple principle. The wrath of God still will find a location to land on the firstborn. But the second born, the wrath of God and perfect justice has already been satisfied. There is no more death. There's no more wrath. If you find your habitation in the second, wrath is quelled. Famous Edomites throughout history. Esau, the firstborn of Isaac, the hunter, the hairy one, hairy red one, who made his living off the land, the great opponent of Jacob. Amalek, known as the first nation. He's the grandson of Esau. He's known as the first nation. The Amalekites come from Amalek, the great opponent of Israel. God says that he will fight Amalek from generation to generation. Doeg. Oh, Doeg's one of the most disturbing characters in the Old Testament. And guess what he just happens to be? An Edomite. All of Saul's men, when Saul asked all of his men to kill the priests, he said they betrayed him because they housed David and gave food to David, his archenemy. None of Saul's men would kill. All of Israel would not touch a priest. And Doeg says, I'll kill him. Yeah, you better believe it. The flesh will kill the spirit life. And that man hewed down all the priests of the Lord. It's disgusting what the flesh will do. 
So he's the chief Edomite herdsman of Saul, the evil destroyer of the priests of Israel, the great opponent of David. Hadad, the great Edomite opponent of King Solomon. It was a distraction to King Solomon, all of his empire reign. Hadad, and he was an Edomite. Haman, you guys remember Haman? You know what it says of Haman? It says, Haman the Agagite. And you're like, so? You know who Agag is? Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Remember that Saul was supposed to kill? Instead, he drug him into, his, uh, into, his, into Israel. And he was like, oh, no, I, well, why? Do I need to kill the king? And Samuel slew Agag. The descendants of Agag, the firstborn, still live on in Haman, who is the one who conspired to destroy all the Jews in the book of Esther. He's Haman the Agagite the conspiring descendant of Esau that sought to destroy the entire Jewish nation, the great opponent of Mordecai the Jew in the book of Esther. Herod the Great. This one came from Dan. Uh, I didn't even know this, but he was, he's an Edomite. I looked it up. Sure enough, he was an Edomite. The Edomite king of Israel appointed by the Romans, the one who sought to kill the baby Christ, the great opponent of the Messiah. I think we're getting the point. Firstborn is seeking to destroy the Messiah. The secondborn is the Messiah. Flesh, spirit. There are two manner of people within you. There is a conspiracy within your very body to destroy the incoming king of kings that wants to rule. Take his throne within your being. But Saul, the firstborn king, has been rejected. You must not be the king in your body. You must relinquish that throne and allow the rightful king, known in the Old Testament as the better man, Jesus, to come in and take his rightful position. The flesh versus the spirit. Sin must be taken away that righteousness might be added. Now, I'm doing something very strategically. You just don't know what I'm doing yet. Sin must be taken away. Something must be removed that something else might be added. The gospel is all about the removal of something and the addition of something. Without the removal, you don't have the addition. I don't know if you guys heard that. But everything I'm going to do in the rest of this message hinges on that. Without the removal of something, you can't have the addition. And so one of the questions that will come into your mind as we're going through this is, why? Why, God, must we have this removal? Why must we lose this? That answer is only understood in the mystery of Jesus Christ being revealed. Something must be removed that something else must be added. And in this case, sin must be taken away that righteousness might be added. Why does Moses write Genesis the way he does? I'm going to take a very specific section of Genesis, and we're going to look at it. It's extremely fascinating. I don't know if you'll be as intrigued as I am, but I was studying the story of of Joseph this week. That's what this message is going to be on, Joseph. And in the study of Joseph, I was looking at the overall flow of Genesis. Now, remember, this is written by Moses. Very early in this whole biblical campaign, it's the first five books. In fact, this is the first book of all of them. And so, Moses doesn't have all the prophecies of this coming Messiah. In fact, there's only a few that are coming out so far. You know that he will be born of the seed of a woman. There's various things. One likened unto Moses will come. But we did not know that he would be of the line of the tribe of Judah. And so Moses is actually delineating the book of Genesis, why does he tell that story right there? Then why does he skip to this story? And then why does he go here? And for us, we're like, why does it matter? Well, God could write all sorts of things. You know, there's 12 sons of Jacob. 
And Moses spends all of his time talking about basically two of them. You know who those two are? Joseph and Judah. It just happens that Jesus is of the lineage of Judah. And you happen to know as you're going through Genesis something about the lineage of Judah. Why does it matter? Why do you need to know this? Because that's the line of the Messiah. Which Moses doesn't even know. When he's writing it down, why would he go off? And by the way, everything that he's writing about Judah is depressing. Why do we need to know this? Could we get back to Joseph? I like that story. Why do we need to hear about this, Tamar and Perez? You know what? This is just disgusting. I don't want to know about all this sin. You must know about this sin. Otherwise, you don't recognize the significance of Joseph. In the midst of the story of Joseph, we have this story of sin. And what we are seeing is a direct comparison between a deliverer who is without spot and the one who betrays him into the hands of sinners who is with spot. Very interesting. By the way, in the Old Testament, Josephus' days, you know what they called Judah? In Josephus' writings, the very same time period of Jesus Christ, the name for Judah in the Hebrew to them was Judas. Why does Moses write Genesis the way he does? First of all, in Genesis 35, you have Jacob's journey to Canaan and settling in Hebron. So you have this great journey. If, I'm not going to go through the first 34 chapters. You have this journey of the Hebrew nation being formed. Jacob has just wrestled with the man of God at, at Peniel, and he has passed through Esau, and he has made his way to Hebron. It's like, whew. Oh, that was quite the journey. Oh, let's just get some rest here. And immediately in Genesis 36, the lineage of Edom is described. So remember I've been talking about Edom, the firstborn. The lineage of Edom is described. And then we skip right to one of Jacob's latter sons, Joseph. And we go into great detail. In fact, in comparison with most of the Bible, it's uncomfortably detailed. It takes up Many, many, many chapters. In fact, I don't remember how many it is, but it's almost like 13 chapters on Joseph. Joseph, who is not the firstborn son. He's not even the secondborn son. He's just like way down the list. Why are we talking about this guy? And of course you can say, well, because of all the things that are going to happen. Yes, but listen to everything that is written. Everything that is written in the Old Testament is written for a purpose. All scripture is useful for doctrine. All scripture is useful for training us in righteousness. What does this have to do with training us? How can we actually understand doctrine by understanding anything about Joseph? Hmm. We'll just watch. So then we have Joseph's preeminence foretold. Right in the very beginning of the story of Joseph, we have Joseph having two dreams. And we also have the fact that all of his other brothers hate him. Not just because of his dreams, but he seems to have a very, very special position in his father's life. Right now, who do you think Joseph is like? Now, just as you're going to hazard a guess, you're probably going to come to the conclusion, well, he seems to be like Jesus. He has a special position in his father's heart and life. And he is given a coat of many colors. Many of us know this story. And I'm going to go into it and touch on a few of these things. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but... He has two dreams, and in these dreams, his brothers are bowing down before him. They're dreams of preeminence. Very, very important. Because everything in the Bible is to declare something before it happens, that when it happens, you might believe. 
Things are told about the Messiah that all nations will bow down. Every knee will bow long before he even comes. And guess what? It will be fulfilled. But he says it in advance that when it does happen, we would believe. So then we have, right after this, Joseph has gotten on the bad side of his brothers and he's betrayed. He is thrown into a pit, but he's betrayed into the hands of sinners. I want you just to see if you can wrap your mind around the similarities here. And guess who is the one dealing with the silver pieces that hands him over? It's Judas. It's absolutely profound. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, sold by Judas for pieces of silver. Judas's moral failure then is in detail described, as if we care. No, could you get back to that story on Joseph? You left me hanging here. He was sold into slavery. What's going on with that? Instead, the Bible stops here and goes into Judah's life. And it says, you need to know this. Why do we need to know the lineage of Judah? Why do we need to know this? It has everything to do with the Messiah. And you should find it quite extraordinary that the lineage through which the Messiah comes is one of debasedness and sin. God chose that through which to reveal his nature. That he took that which was warped and twisted and he redeemed it. Joseph's moral excellence then, right in the next chapter, we have this enunciation of Joseph's moral purity. Judah's despicableness, Joseph's untouchability. His moral purity. Potiphar's wife is luring him in, and he will not compromise. That's the next chapter. In, right in, a, in engagement with these very concepts, you see a contrast in Scripture. Judah's line and Joseph. So Joseph's moral excellence described his unjust suffering and subsequent exaltation to the right hand of majesty. That's all the way through chapter 41. So did you read that, by the way? Let me read it slowly so you might catch what's happening in Genesis 39 through 41. Joseph's moral excellence described his unjust suffering and his subsequent exaltation to the right hand of majesty. Hmm. The sons of Israel recognize their need for what only Joseph can supply. So what happens? A famine comes upon the land. Meanwhile, Joseph even got out of prison because he was an interpreter, because he understood mystery. Because he was able to see things that no one else could see. And so as a result, he knows that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so he is stuck in the right-hand position of Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joseph, because of his wisdom, actually has a surplus of corn and, and food. He has everything the nations around him need. And so what is awakened in the nations? They have need. And they have no other solution but to come to who? Joseph. Joseph is the lone solution for all the nations. Israel can find no other life sustenance except for in one person. Joseph. So, Joseph tries the sons of Israel to prove their hearts and if they have genuine sorrow for their past sins. I don't know if you're hearing the gospel as I'm going through the book of Genesis here. Judas's change of heart is revealed in Genesis 43. Guess who repents? Guess who changes? A man named Judas, of all people. The Bible, for some reason, has this lens that doesn't want to miss what is going on in this one man's heart. 
So they detail his lineage and all of his dastardly deeds. And then they come back to it in the story of Joseph, the very man who betrayed him. And they come back and they say, look at this man. Look how he's responding. He's the one in dealing with Jacob when Jacob is like, I cannot give up Benjamin. And Judah says, you will take my life in its stead. If anything happens, I will give up my life. He literally becomes the advocate for Jacob. And then who is the one that stands before Joseph and pleads? Pleads, saying, I know we don't deserve it. And if you're going to kill someone, kill me instead. Judah is transformed because of the position and the long-suffering mercies of Joseph. His need was exposed, and he recognized he was a sinner. I shouldn't have done that to Joseph. He doesn't even know it's Joseph in front of him. I shouldn't have done that. And he is brought low, and he humbles himself, and basically says, take me instead. Judah's repentance, bending an acknowledgement of his need for mercy at the hand of Joseph, the conversion of Judas. Joseph's revelation to the sons of Israel, the fulfillment of the mystery revealed that they might believe and rejoice. Suddenly, Joseph says, I am he. Remember those dreams? It's all been fulfilled. That they might believe what is being established, their faith in God. They're seeing God's hand of providence throughout this entire thing. God is in control. Joseph's lavish salvation. Joseph doesn't just save his brothers from the destitutions of famine. But he lavishly saves them. He lavishly protects them and he lavishly makes provision unto Israel. The mysterious name of Joseph. Did you know that the name Joseph, even in and of itself, is a mystery? Yosef. Sort of like uh, a, a, in a, what, Italian or a New Yorker uh, baseball umpire. You're safe! Uh. <laughs> but you're safe is a very interesting word to know how to deal with. Because it means two things at the same time, and the two things are contradictory. It indicates a double etymology, which is the history of a word. It declares two seemingly opposite things at once. It declares that Jehovah removes from a man and that he also adds unto a man. It declares something about removal. Something must be taken away, and then it also seems to indicate that something must be added. Well, how can both be true at the same time? You can't take away and add something at the same time, can you? What do we need? We need the key. We need Jesus Christ. You stick Jesus Christ into the name of Joseph, and the whole thing makes sense. But with the key of Christ, the seeming contradiction makes perfect sense in light of the gospel. So, first of all, it involves the idea of removal and adding. It means something's stripped from, and then something's restored unto. It means something's taken from, and then something's added to. It also means the idea of losing and yet gaining. And it's gaining even in and through the losing. That even in the losing, you are gaining. How does this, that doesn't make sense. Loss that leads to gain. Welcome to the New Testament. To die is gain. Though a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it's dying in order that fruit would come forth. This is the revelation of the Messiah. This is the Messiah. You're safe. It's also the idea of exchanging out something bad for something good. Death exchanged out for life. So I have a whole bunch of death over here, and I don't want it. 
So I need to give that up. I need to be stripped of the death so I can get what? Until my hands are free, I can't be given the life. I need to give up something that I might gain something. Imprisonment exchanged out for freedom. I'm in the bonds of sin. So I must give up those bonds to sin that I may be free and have the liberty of Christ Jesus. Darkness exchanged out for light. If you want light, you need to forsake your darkness. Yosef is merely a declaration of good news. So listen to this. This is the key of Christ stuck into the name of Joseph. He was emptied that he might be filled. He was crucified that he might rise anew. He was stripped of life that he might be born again. Yosef is a Christophany. I have a message called Christophany, but that's a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Yosef, Joseph, is an incredible Christophany. He's born of the second, Rachel, also known as the loved or the spirit. Jesus was born of the spirit. He was born of the second. He is the second man. He is the beloved of the father. In his old age, Jacob had, it would appear, Jacob had a special attendant, and that was Joseph. And Joseph was very near and dear to his heart. And he was the emissary over all of his matters. He was the one that basically checked in on all the work and activity of his brothers. He's the beloved of the Father, clothed in the full rainbow, the coat of many colors. Jesus, if you were to think about this, it depends on how well you know the scriptures. When Jesus is described in his exalted state in heaven, any time in the Bible, Old Testament or New, what is it described as in his upper torso? He's surrounded with a rainbow. This is a symbol of preeminence. This is a symbol of Jesus Christ's authority. A position given him by who? The Father. Clothed in the full rainbow, the coat of many colors. The better man. He's promised to rule. Preeminence foretold. Every knee will bow. He has two dreams. Stalks of wheat bending. Stars and moon bending, bowing. Declaring that he is preeminent. Born of Israel. You see, Joseph is born of Israel. He is the descent of Israel. Jesus must be born of Israel. Otherwise, he's not the Messiah. He's rejected of his brethren, stripped, betrayed for silver into the hands of sinners. If you read Josephus, they actually destroyed and tore apart his garments. And at the cross, there was a separation of his garments. And they cast lots for his clothing. The parallels between it are astounding. And it was his very brethren that were leading to this disaster. In Josephus' Antiquities, by the way, I, it's always a fun thing to read a, an ancient story in and through the lens of the Hebrew mind because they had oral tradition as well. And so this is not scripture. However, this is the oral tradition of this very scene in Josephus' Antiquities. Josephus lived at the exact time of Jesus Christ, actually was a testimony of the fact that Jesus was a real man, performed many miracles, and he wasn't even a Christian. He's just a good Jew. But Judas, being one of Jacob's sons, also seeing some Arabians of the posterity of Ishmael, or the firstborns, carrying spices and Syrian wares out of the land of Gilead to the Egyptians after Rubel was gone, that's Reuben, advised his brethren to draw Joseph out of the pit and sell him to the Arabians. For if he should die among strangers a great way off, they should be freed from this barbarous action. This, therefore, was resolved on, so they drew Joseph up out of the pit and sold him to the merchants for 20 pounds. In the Bible, it says he was sold for 20 pieces of silver. Uh, in certain Jewish things, all throughout history, they've had different translations of this, and two of the four 
declared it to be 30 pieces of silver that he was sold for. I have, it really doesn't make any difference. I just thought it was extremely fascinating, especially since it's Jews writing it down. They don't even believe in Jesus, saying that Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. It's very fascinating. And then here we have, when Joseph's brethren had done thus to him, they considered what they should do to escape the suspicions of their father. Now they had taken away from Joseph the coat which he had on when he came to them at the time they let him down into the pit. So they thought it proper to tear that coat to pieces. They divided his garments amongst them, and to dip it into the goat's blood, and then to carry it and show it to their father, that he might believe he was destroyed by wild beasts. This is the behavior of the flesh, to justify and to put off the guilt on something else. And so here we have an incredible picture of the cross. The next uh, scene we have is turned over the to the evils of the world. Jesus is betrayed into the hands of sinners and the world, actually, not even the Jews, the ones who were expecting him for all these generations actually betray him and turn him over into the hands of sinners. Their own kin, their own brother. They betrayed him and turned him over into the hands of wicked men. Though tried, accused, mocked, and imprisoned, there's a lot in that part, uh, he is examined and found faultless. By every single one that he ever came in contact with, though he was falsely accused, he literally only is ever exalted. And he is literally at the right hand of Pharaoh, even though he was imprisoned, and even though he was a slave boy. From the lowest prison, he's exalted to the highest place. Does that sound like the gospel or what? Second only to Pharaoh in the most powerful nation on earth. He becomes a remedy, an unexpected mercy for the nation of Israel, a savior able to supply the food that all need. He's a picture of forgiveness and grace, and every knee in Israel bows, and every knee in Egypt bows. Now, after Egypt had happily passed over seven years, so these are the seven years of plenty that uh, Joseph uh, interpreted in Pharaoh's dream. According to Joseph's interpretation of the dreams, the famine came upon them in the eighth year. And because this misfortune fell upon them when they had no sense of it beforehand, they were all sorely afflicted by it and came running to the king's gates. And he called upon Joseph, who sold the corn to them, being become confessedly a savior to the whole multitude of the Egyptians. Nor did he open this market of corn for the people of that country only, but strangers had liberty to buy also. He could have just made it available to his own country. Instead... Because of the way that Joseph was, he said, we have been blessed. May we be a blessing to the nations. And he became a savior, not just to Egypt, but to the whole world. Joseph being willing that all men who are naturally akin to one another should have assistance from those that lived in happiness. Then he makes an invitation to the land of Goshen in the midst of an evil world marked by the destitutions of sin and famine. All of the brethren he invites in in the midst of a polluted world They receive a land, an inheritance, and they are protected there by Joseph. And as long as Joseph lives, there is protection. The good thing about our story is Jesus always lives, whereas in the olden days, Joseph died, and the protection was lost. The master of dreams. I think I have the quote here. And they said one to another, behold, the dreamer comes. Well, you look at the word dreamer, and it actually is more than dreamer. It's Baal Kalom, which means the master of dreams. And they're mocking him. Oh, here comes the master of dreams. Well, guess what? He was the master of dreams. It's the master of that which is hidden. The master of mystery. Who's the master of mystery? Who's the Baal 
Kalom. It's Jesus. And they said one to another, Behold, this dreamer comes. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. If you kill Joseph, what will become of his dreams? And no one's going to be bowing down. They wanted to sabotage these dreams. However, this mystery cannot be sabotaged. Guess what? It still happened. And they dreamed a dream. This is speaking of the butler and the baker in the prison. Joseph has not yet been exalted to the, to the right hand of Pharaoh. And they dreamed a dream, both of them, each man his dream in one night. Each man according to the interpretation of his dream, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in the prison. And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? What do you say about a mystery? Do not the interpretations of the mystery belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. In Josephus' histories, Jacob is known by Pharaoh. Pharaoh's name for Joseph is Sothamphanic, which means the revealer of secrets, the revealer of that which is hidden. This is Jesus. The master of dreams has come. Now I tell you before it comes, says Jesus, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. A better way to say that is that I am. I am Jehovah. You see, I'm telling you in advance that when it does happen, I will be betrayed, I will be crucified, and I will rise again on the third day. Why am I telling you this? So that when it does happen, you will believe that I am. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it come to pass, you might believe. So all of this story of Joseph, you have the foretelling in his youth when he's 17 years old. He has two dreams. And these dreams are told beforehand that when it does happen, they would believe in Jehovah. The revealers, the revealer of mysteries. Now here are the classic questions that we have in our life. Now we don't have Joseph in our question. But these are the questions. Why was Joseph hated and despised? Why would God do that? Why was he hated and despised? That's, that just doesn't seem like it should be part of the story. Why was Joseph left in a pit? Why was Joseph sold into slavery? Why was Joseph's virtue rewarded with prison? Did he do something wrong? Why did these things happen? There's an agony that we deal with in our life. However, in that mystery, in that why... There is a key. There's a key, and the master of dreams has come. The master of that which is hidden has come, and it is all solved in Jesus. Most of us, when we look at the book of Joseph, in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph, a lot of times when you've read it, you say, well, that's just a story of God's providence and his sovereignty. That's why it's in the Bible. Here's what I would propose. First of all, a lot of us take the key of sovereignty and we stick it into the text of Scripture to interpret it. Sovereignty is not the key. It is not the hermeneutic that we use. Sovereignty is the byproduct of what you see when Jesus Christ is revealed. The key that we use is Jesus Christ and him crucified. What are we supposed to see in the story of Joseph? Sovereignty is one dimension of what we see. We see Jesus Every mystery is given so that we would see Jesus, not so that we would see one attribute of Jesus, even if it be a critical one. 
but so that we would see Jesus. Joseph is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament is a revelation of Jesus Christ. The entire history of Israel is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a man that must be seen. So why? Why was Joseph hated and despised? Don't stick in the answer of sovereignty into that, even though that's part of it. Stick in Jesus into this. When you have Jesus as your interpretive device, the why is solved, but in Jesus. But as for you, says Joseph, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Jesus says, I have come to save. Don't you recognize? Didn't you read the book of Joseph? Don't you understand the, my- the mystery? Something must be taken away that something would be added. You see, I must die that I might live for you. You see, I must suffer that you would be spared. You see, something must be taken so that something can be added. The story of Joseph is not merely the providence of God. It is the revelation of the person of God, the work of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God. It will not be stopped. It will not be quelled. It will not be slowed. God will accomplish his ends. The mystery hidden for ages and generation is now revealed in Jesus. The worm and no man has become our savior. He became nothing. He became lower than the low. He was sold into slavery by his very brethren, turned over into the hands of sinners, scourged as a common criminal, hung, mocked, spat upon, his beard ripped out. He became a worm and no man. And that worm and no man has become our savior. The way that they mistreated Joseph is unjust and not right. And any of us that would see that story are horrified that brethren would do that unto their very kin. And yet that is what happened to Jesus. And when you stick Jesus into that story, it makes sense. Joseph is a foretelling. It is a preparation for the people of Israel to recognize the one who will have supply for them in their day of famine. The one who they must bow down before and declare as their chief as their Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave, that all nations may come and buy corn, that all tribes and tongues may come unto the deliverer. It's been open to all nations. God in his foresight saw the famine that was coming to your soul, and he made provision for it at the cross, so that in your day of need you would come and bow down before the deliverer, before the Savior, and he would say, what are your needs? The reason I've saved up all of this is not merely for my own people, but for all people. That it would be foretold ahead of time that we might believe. The mystery hidden. The baker. What does a baker use? He uses all the ingredients from the field. He's very similar to Cain. I know this seems to sound strange. I'm not trying to criticize bakers. This is a symbol. A baker is the offer of self-effort. And you know what the dream interpretation is? When the baker shares his dream, Joseph says, "Mm -hmm." and in three days, it will be revealed that you will be hung on a tree and ravens, I think it is, or birds, will eat uh, from the basket of your head. Basically, he'll be eaten by birds. Rather disgusting, I know. The butler gives a different one. The butler is a cupbearer. He's the one that brings what to the king? The juice of a grape, also known as blood of a grape. It's the sacrifice that is given. 
And the butler, the giver of the blood, must be restored into his position of filling the king's cup. In three days, it will be revealed. The master of dreams has spoken. These two have a dream, two different sorts of men. One who is a baker, who works with that which is from the field. The other, which is a cupbearer, a butler, who serves unto the king, but with an offering of blood. And the third day reveals the old man is condemned and crucified. The new man lives and is exalted to the right hand. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, what did it reveal? Old man, dead. Crucified is what it says in Scripture. You know that in Josephus' word, I think I have it coming up here, it actually says that the baker, in Josephus' own words, was crucified on the third day. That's what it says. He was crucified. It's actually the term used. The baker, the old man, the flesh, the one that has his own self-effort, he was dealt with and put out of the way. But the new man, the butler, the one that offers blood, will be exalted once again to his previous position that had been lost. The baker, the man of many impressive recipes, Adam, Cain, Ishmael, Esau, etc., as also that the chief baker was crucified on the very same day, and that this also happened to him according to the interpretation of Joseph. That's what Josephus actually says. And then what does it say in Romans 6? Knowing this, that our old man, the baker, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Firstborn is dealt with, that the secondborn might be exalted. That the second, the spirit, might gain his rightful position and his preeminence. So the butler, he's the blood bearer. He is he's, he who puts his confidence in the offering of purity. Jesus, Abel, Isaac, Israel, etc. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Think of the pressing out of a grape here. The giving up of his own life. And he took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He was crushed. His life was expressed from him. He took the lowest place, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth. I would like to go through seven mysteries in the story of Joseph. I'm not trying to be weird here. Seven mysteries, things that we could say, why is that? Now, when you study it, and especially in the global construct of Scripture, you could say, why did he write that? Why did God choose that story? Why did God tell that part of the story? Why? There's a lot more than seven, by the way, but here are seven of them. The mystery, part one. Why is the story of Joseph told? Now, some of us could default and say, well, to show the providence of God. Well, you could say that about the entire Old Testament. It's the only answer you could ever have. Oh, the providence of God is seen. And it's true. But that's a derivative. That is not the main reason. Why is the story of Joseph told? What are we supposed to be beholding? What are we supposed to be seeing? It's a person, not an attribute, not a behavior quality, a person. Why is the story of Joseph told? It's to reveal the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The mystery part two, why did Joseph dream dreams? That we would know beforehand that when it comes to pass, 
we might believe. The mystery part three, why was Joseph given the many-colored coat? To reveal his portrayal of the Messiah, the one clothed in a rainbow, stripped of his grand clothing, become a worm and no man in order that he might become the savior of his people and all who would come unto him for salvation in time of drought. Listen to Ezekiel 1. It's the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. That's a rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of, a voice of one that spoke. And then all the way to Revelation 4. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. Do you know who it's talking about? Jesus. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. The mystery part four. Why must Joseph suffer? That he would reveal the mystery of godliness. That out of death comes forth life. You see, Joseph must suffer. That he would reveal the mystery hidden for ages and generations, that out of death comes life, that out of lowness is exaltation. It's just how it works. This is the Messiah pattern. And you can say, well, I'm glad it's Joseph and not me. What's your position? In mm-hmm. In Yosef. You are in that deliverer. And this is his pattern. And so for you also, there is a dying that there is life. You must seek the lowest place to find exaltation in his kingdom. This is the pattern of Yosef. This is the pattern of the kingdom. This is the pattern of that personal Messiah that you have come to. Don't forsake what we are learning here and think that it does not apply to you practically and personally. This is truth and it's unalterable. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The mystery part five. Why do the baker and the butler dream dreams? That it would be revealed that on the third day, which was, by the way, Pharaoh's birthday. It's the day of birth, which is really amazing. The king of kings' new birthday is what I call it. The baker bears the king's wrath and is condemned and crucified. That the butler lives and that the butler lives is released from his low estate and has been exalted to the right hand of the highest, bearing the cup of great blood before his majesty. The mystery part six. Why is Joseph exalted at the right hand of the king? That a picture of the authority of the coming Messiah would be foretold. That at his chariot's passing, it would be declared, bend the knee. Genesis 41, listen to this. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. Could you imagine all that led the chariot in which Joseph sat, which was the second chariot, just like Jesus, is at the right hand of the Father. The Father has all authority. But Jesus has been given, bequeathed that second chariot. And as a result, every, all the heralds in, in Egypt go before the chariot and say, bend the knee, bend the knee. What are we as gospel tears? We're going before the second chariot and shouting, bend the knee. The chariot comes. The chariot of Yosef is coming through. All Egypt, bow the knee. Oh, it's good. The mystery part seven, who is Judas? He is the betrayer of kin, the forsaker of righteousness. There's 12 sons. I'm 12. (laughs) 12 sons. And in that 12, there is a betrayer. Isn't that amazing? And here, all those years later, in those 12, there is one amongst us 
There is one amongst us, and he is kin, and he is close, and he is near, and he is dear. Now, sort of like in us, all these dynamics, we have Yosef in our life, and yet there's still a Judas that needs to be dealt with. There's still that dimension that needs to be redeemed and reborn. And so what we see in this story is the effect of Joseph upon Judah. Because Judah is our our life. We're not like Joseph. We esteem Joseph, but we're not like Joseph. We're like Judas. We are betrayers. We have transacted and chosen the world in exchange for the goodness of our God. And you can say, but I'm not doing that anymore, but... You did it. And all it takes is one speck of unrighteousness to be forever cut off from the perfect holy, holy, holy one. We are at odds with the king. We are at odds with Joseph. We have betrayed him and he has suffered because of us. We gained and he lost. He suffered because of us. Why is he in that prison? Why was he thrown into that cell? Why was he treated as a slave? It's because of us. He is the betrayer of kin, the forsaker of righteousness. He he is that spot in Israel of moral impurity and betrayal of the Christ. He is the one convicted by purity, broken with the grief of wrongdoing and over the weight of his blood guilt. For he assumes that the one he betrayed is a dead man and that he is rightfully judged. There is a true breaking of the man. I, I don't want to speak on behalf of Judas in the New Testament. As far as like, well, does that mean he repented and went to heaven? I'm not going to, we're not going there. All I'm saying is that there's a symbol here. Because in the Old Testament we see a Judas, which is an incredible statement, a Judas that betrays and receives reward because of it. But then he is so utterly convicted of his foul play, of his rebellion, of his betrayal. He has lied to his father. And he tore into pieces the preeminence and the authority of Joseph. And he has befouled the glory. And as a result, after all these years of living in impoverishment, now he's in famine. He's lost the favor of his father. He wants to see that regained, but he doesn't know how. And who's the one that actually enables that reenactment, that reestablishment? But Yosef. Yosef is the one. He stands up. Judas, in all his own strength, says, Look, I'll die. That, Ju- that Benjamin might live. But he's still weak. He can't spare Benjamin. He says, I'll give up my own life. But if you know the story, Benjamin is taken. And he can't stop it. He has no ability in his own strength to do even what he promises. Just like Peter. I will die with you tonight. And what does he do? He depra- betrays him and denies him three times. This is us. We are as Judas. We are responsible. All the evil in the story. All the, the junk in the story is a result of Judas. And yet, who is redeemed in and through this great story? He is the one convicted by purity, broken with the grief of wrongdoing and over the weight of his blood guilt. For he assumes that the one he betrayed is a dead man and that he is rightfully judged. But he is also the repentant and the one who becomes the chief and advocate of that which is right and good. This is what Josephus says. But Judas, who had persuaded their father to send the lad from him, being otherwise also a very bold and active man, determined to hazard himself for the preservation of his brother. It's just like, Peter, I will die for you. I will die for you tonight. 
And Jesus says, Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. You see, Peter still needed something, and so does Judas. So Judas, being very willing to undergo anything, whatever, for the deliverance of his brother, cast himself down at Joseph's feet and earnestly labored to assuage and pacify his anger. All his brethren also fell down before him, weeping and delivering themselves up to destruction for the preservation of the life of Benjamin. In the story, even Josephus describes this as the testing of his brothers. He was testing them to see because he knows how heartless they were. So when he takes Benjamin from them, are they going to preserve their own life? And instead, what do they do? They fall down before him and say, our lives for Benjamin. What a change. You see, something has changed in Israel. As a result of Joseph's sufferings, as a result of Joseph's condition, something has changed and it is being brought to a head. If Joseph had not been waylaid and laid low and had this exaltation, they would never have seen their sin. But as a result, because of what happened, their sin has been made known to them. If Jesus doesn't suffer and die, is your sin made known to you? The mystery has been unlocked. Why must he suffer? Why must he die? That you would be saved. There is a reason behind these things. It is not random. It is purposeful. Your deliverer has come. The master of dreams has come. And he's the interpreter. That When you stick him into the lock of your life, it all begins to make sense. The mystery of Christ. He must suffer and die and then rise again. Listen to this line in Genesis 45. And Joseph gave them provision for the way. Isn't that an incredible statement? Joseph gave them provision for the way. He had to suffer. He had to die to his family. As far as they knew, he was dead. He was a dead man. Jacob, Israel, thought he was dead. Well, he was. But he rose again. And Joseph still lives. What an amazing statement back to the father. His father had been in agony and grief for all these years. And suddenly the brothers come to him and bring the news. The apostles are sent out to bring the news. He lives. Yosef lives. He had to die. That life would be brought to Israel. And now in a time of famine, there is salvation made. A way has been made. And who provided for that way? Yosef. Jesus provided for that way. Colossians 1, 26 through 27. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not just made available to the Jews, but it's made available also to all the world, even the Gentiles. What's been made available to us? Christ is made available to us. You see, the provision isn't corn. It isn't wheat that is stored up in barns in Egypt. It is a man. And that man is what we need. Unless we eat of his body and drink of his blood, we can have no life in us. We're in a time of famine. And guess who has the storehouses made available to us? And guess who is the dispenser of that which we need? He is the one put in charge of all of it. All the storehouse. And if we come to him, he will not turn us away. There's an invitation to you personally that you would turn unto that deliverer and cry out for help in a time of famine and drought. 
I don't have anything, and without you, I die. He says, I've made provision for the way. Everything that you will need has been made available to you. When you begin to grapple with this mystery and that he is the key that unlocks all mystery, I want you to begin to stick it into your life. Every bit of suffering that you go through, every bit of confusion and dark passages that you must walk through, why are you walking through them? To reveal. To reveal what? To reveal Jesus. Jesus will always come out the other side. The end conclusion of any time something is taken away, it's so that something might be added. And we might not understand in the moment any more than Joseph did when he was sold into slavery. Why would my brothers do this? I've had these dreams in the past. I've seen this. But this doesn't match with it. I recognize that. But something is being revealed. And the master of dreams is here for us. That he would take his own life and he would inject it into us. And that he would take this dark cloud of a life and he would shine light into it. And suddenly, all becomes clear. I am going through this that Jesus Christ might be glorified. That Jesus Christ might be seen. Whatever is evil that has worked against me, God turns it to good. He sees it ahead of time. And so as a result, no matter what happens in this life, it is all to reveal Jesus. It is all to turn all of the attentions to the one who has made provision. To the one who is exalted. Bend the knee. Bend the knee. He has done it. He is faithful. He is true. Not just at the cross. Not just in the resurrection. Not just in the exalted Savior. Not in the fact that he poured out his spirit. But he will. in And through that poured out spirit. Through all the provision of his own life to you. The mystery hidden for ages and generations is God is saying. I am that mystery. And I have made myself that mystery available to you that you might have the key. That you might reveal the glory of God just as it was revealed in and through the story of Joseph. That your life, though in its darkest moments, you must always trust that I am He. And I have promised. And I will not fail you. So when things go dark, remember Yosef. Remember that things have to be taken away that other things might be added. And so even when we're going through disillusionment or what seems like disillusionment or difficulties, our motives are being purified. And that which must be removed from the husk of the wheat, that which must be removed from the grape, that little shell around the grape, that little skin around the grape, yeah, needs to be removed so that the life can come forth. We are going through a refining process that Jesus Christ would be seen more clearly. Every situation you have in life, you have Jesus. Stick him into it. And what you will see is everything leads to him, to more of him. If you embrace it, if you walk through it the way that he would call you to walk through it, you may have been a Judas, but you will be converted into the one who bears the very lineage of Jesus and what will come out of your seed. Jesus. What came out of Judah? What came out of, in this sense, Judas, the rebel, the betrayer? The fruit of Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit will come out of our life too. When we allow that life of Joseph to change us. 
Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.